is the aftermath of the grand jury deciding not to indict Officer Wilson. We wouldn't have even called ourselves protesters in the beginning. We were just like citizens who were outside mad that they killed Mike Brown, right? Like that was how we identified. And I remember sitting on my couch and saying like, the least I could do is go stand with people who are upset about a kid being killed in the middle of the street. Like that's the very least I could do. Welcome to Majority Minority, a podcast about people of color changing the face of Washington. I'm Frank Ordonez, and I cover the White House for the 30 news outlets that together make up McClatchy. And I'm Bill Douglas, and I cover Congress for McClatchy. Today we have DeRay McKesson, one of the most prominent members of the Black Lives Matter movement. He joined us to talk about the praise and the criticism he's received for being so out front. People would be like, DeRay's just trying to get rich. And you're like, I'm actually the brokest I've ever been running for mayor because I can't really work. And all I can do is like campaign. You know, he's kind of facing like this inside versus outside struggle, trying to figure out where his role is, where he could do the most good. He's obviously played a large role on the outside. And recently he's been trying to feel out the inside running for mayor of Baltimore. He's been called an activist as opposed to an activist by some of his detractors. He likes to say that he's trying to provide influence to others through things like his new podcast, Pod Save the People. You know, Black Lives Matter movement, as other movements, they need faces, they need personalities, but there are some challenges when you have the spotlight on you. It was like August 16th, 2014. I was on my couch. I was like, this looks wild. It's one o'clock in the morning. I saw what was happening on TV. So I was happening on Twitter. I was like, I'm going to go. Like, I just want to see for myself. Uh, I waited for my best friend, Donnie, to wake up. He had just got married. He lived in Chicago with his wife. And we had this sort of deal that I wouldn't like call him randomly in the middle of the night anymore. Cause like, you know, he's now married. <laughs> so I literally just like waited to like 7.55. And I'm like, hey, Donnie. He's like, Dre, what's up? And I'm like, I think I want to go to Ferguson. Like, this seems wild. And he's like, if you think you should go, you should go. By then I'd already had like a bag packed. I was like, just waiting for somebody to tell me that like this wasn't a wild idea uh, and the rest of that is history but there's been very little about sort of you your backstory and, and who you are i feel like there's been more than enough about <laughs> who i am you know so i'm from baltimore born and raised in the city both of my parents were addicted to drugs my mother left when i was three my father raised us in so many ways i grew up in a community of recovery because I, I grew up around adults putting their lives back together in ways that they didn't always think was possible uh, after high school i went to college in maine i went to Bowdoin, which was incredible after college i was like i gotta go somewhere big so i went to new york i taught sixth grade math in east new york brooklyn for two years which was awesome and then i moved back home to baltimore i opened up an after school out of school center for middle grade so we served fifth through eighth graders did that for two cycles and i managed and trained uh, the way that we supported uh, about a third of all the new teachers in the city of Baltimore. Uh, and after that, I went to Minneapolis and I had a similar role. I was like the number two in human capital. Mike Brown got killed. I went to the protest. In kind of like that history of your parents and teaching, is there one of those that kind of helped shape you more about like the person you became and your activism and kind of your perspective? I was in student government from sixth grade to senior year in college. So more than half my life, I was like elected by my peers to lead something. And that gave me a really interesting perspective on like what it means to be on the inside. And, and granted, like student government's a different type of inside than 
the other government. I can say that from having worked in the government as an official. But those are really formative, like what it's like to be in meetings and what it's like to be a 13-year-old who is deciding where millions of dollars of grant money goes or those sort of things. And I was uh, on a lot of boards and commissions as a teenager. So that fundamentally helped me sort of imagine and, and think differently about the world. And at Bowdoin, you know, I think about Bowdoin as a place where I fell in love with my mind. And I was a class president for three years and student body president for two. And I just got to work on these like incredible teams, like these teams of people who just like dreamed and imagined as default. Like that was like how we entered this space. So when I think about now, like some of the projects we're working on is like, I'm not constrained by like what we've done or like what people think is possible. Cause like I've been in places where like we did things that people thought was impossible. What about teaching? I mean, how did teaching shape your activism? Teaching was the single hardest thing I've ever done. If any, have you taught before? I taught in uh, South America and I taught English. It had a, a real big impact on yeah, me. Yeah, both my parents were school teachers. Yeah, it's like I've never failed as much ever. I think about the classroom as uh, two big lessons. One was you can achieve substantial change over time. So I remember what it was like to teach my students like that 3x is three times x and for them not to understand it at all. But by June, for them to be doing like multi-step equations that like are predicated on them having understood this thing like six months ago and seeing that like long arc was huge for me to like see myself and like be a part of. And the second is understanding my responsibility as an adult to make a world that is like right for them. That like they were 11, you know, now they're old. I taught a decade ago, which is sort of wild to me, but they're old now. And it's like, have we done our part to make sure that this is a world that is awesome for them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were involved with Teach for America. How much did that prepare you for activism? I read a, a story of one person in the Black Lives Matter movement sort of said that Teach for America was like a finishing school for you to learn to deal with white people. One, it, was that a fair assessment? And two, what did the Teach for American experience mean to you? Both my parents graduated from high school, and my father, bless his heart, he didn't know much of what to do with us in terms of school, but he saved enough money to move us to a new neighborhood so we could just go to a different school, and that was how he sort of changed our education trajectory. I say that because I went to a school that was mixed, like it wasn't majority black, so I don't think that Teacher America was like a finishing school for me to understand what it was like to be in a place of not only black people, and then I went to Bowdoin. Bowdoin College is located in Brunswick, Maine, near the shores of Casco Bay and the Androscoggin. Which was very white. <laughs> um, but Teacher America was incredible because the people that were in the core, like in Teacher America, were some of the best teachers I'd ever seen. Definitely some of the most imaginative, like people who weren't constrained by what had been done before. Or like we didn't have any conception of how teaching was supposed to be. We needed to make sure our kids learned and we wanted it to be fun and enjoyable. And like I was around so many people who believed that and like that was incredible. Like most organizations, like all organizations, it's not perfect, right? There are things that definitely needed to be changed back then that, that have been changed since and there's more growth to happen. And as somebody who used to hire teachers both in, in Baltimore and used to manage the hiring of teachers in Minneapolis, the teacher shortage is so real in a way that we've not yet come to understand in the public conversation and Teacher America fills an important role in that space. Just sort of curious, what got you from Baltimore to Bowdoin, why that school? Yeah, so random. I wish it was like a much cooler story, but before class started, I went down to Guidance and Guidance was like, there's a college visit, Bowdoin College. And it was like the exact same time as class. And I was like, Mr. Albright, I gotta go to this college visit because like this college is great. Never heard of Bowdoin before, where's Maine? And I was the only person who signed up, but that's how it ended up in Maine. And I went to visit Bowdoin before I'd accepted 
And I remember the admissions guy, Irby, he was like, uh, walk around and see if you could see yourself here. And I remember it being a campus where it was like, I could totally see myself here for four years. It was great. I loved everything about Bowdoin. When you were there, were you walking around thinking activism in, in your future, just teaching? Or? You know, like when I was at Bowdoin, Bowdoin's a relatively chill place in terms of changing things, right? It's like we had the number of food in the country. We had like lobster, duck, and rabbit at the dining hall, right? So we weren't like burning down the walls being like, we should da-da-da-da-da, right? It was a place that like needed to have continuing work around community and inclusion and those sort of things. I think Abodin is a place that like showed me that it doesn't take a lot of people to change a community, right? That like you can get four, five, ten people that can like have an outsized impact on what a community looks like and feels. And I saw that and got to experience that myself. And I think that that sort of shaped the way I thought about the world. It shaped the way that I was a teacher. It certainly shapes the way I'm an activist now. It shapes the way I was the human capital officer. And growing up in Baltimore, change always seemed like, you know, God himself came down. It was like, this is going to happen. And then I like went to college and saw people my age sit in a room and be like, we should do X, Y, and Z. And then like we did it. And I was like, I've never seen that before. That's really crazy. And when I think about the movement, you have have to remember that when the officer that killed Garner didn't get indicted, there were those big protests in New York City, if you remember, and they like crossed the bridge and they did all this stuff. And that was really the first time in the public space that people had started to call this like the Black Lives Matter movement, that like it had gotten sort of a formal name in the public space. And when I think about what it meant to be in the street in those days is that like I did learn from college and from being a teacher that like at some point you have to put into practice the commitments that you make, right? So if I say I like believe in kids and I believe in equity and it's like how far am I willing to take that commitment? And that sort of changed the way that I thought about all of this work. How do you balance your personal identity with the framework of the Black Lives Matter movement? I remember the very first time I ever did a TV interview, it was when uh, the officers got shot in Ferguson, if you remember that, which feels like forever ago. You know, violence is not a, is not a tactic to, to get to justice. So I don't condone uh, killing police officers. I don't condone the killing of unarmed men. I don't condone killing... And I remember being like, I'm going to do these interviews because what people are seeing on the news is just not true. Whether we like agree or disagree, like the way it's being spun didn't happen. And from then on, I feel like I spent so much time defending, right? It was like sort of saying like, this didn't happen, this didn't happen, you should understand this. Because protest wasn't something that people thought was like an important thing, a good thing. People still told us there were a different way to make an impact. And now it's just different three years later because now it's like everybody's, a pro- right? People are protesting is like the coolest thing you could possibly do. I was at this dinner with Attorney General Holder and he was like, you know, he's so proud of the people at the airports. And I'm like, proud? You weren't proud of, like, you weren't saying how proud you were of us standing in the middle of the street three years ago, right? So it's different now in terms of, like, how I think about my own role in this space. So I'm trying to figure out, like, how do we respond to the incredible amount of people who want to do something? So right now, more than ever, I think there are people who are like, I get it. I get the problem. I want to do something, right? How do you define your role in the movement. I mean, you're one of the more prominent names, faces. I mean, but how do you define your role? You know, if I can help be an entrance for people into this work, that is important to me. Also trying to correct the narratives when the narratives get sort of askew and helping people have language to talk about the world that we live in 
is something that I'm mindful of. And then trying to help people find a way to make an impact. And I'm always mindful that I'm one of many people that, you know, I didn't start a movement that like no one, two or three people started a movement that like people came outside and made this space happen. No one of us has all the answers. And I'm proud when I like can talk to a high school senior or like somebody on the train and da da da, and they're like, what can I do? And I'm, and it's like reminding them they already have permission to like change the world, right? That they can do that, that that's real. How do you confront some of those challenges? You mentioned some of the attention that you've gotten and as your work has gotten more awareness, you know, some have felt a little uncomfortable with that, I guess you would say. Everybody has a role to play and I'm trying to figure out like what my role is. So I think about when I started this newsletter, I started a newsletter like in August 2014, long time ago. But it was an important newsletter in Ferguson that like chronicled not only what was happening, but like the events and like things that people should look at. And I remember calling people being like, I think I'm going to do this thing. And people, everybody was like, bad idea, da 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 except for my best friend who was like, I think that makes sense. And like I did it and it went from like 100 people to 20,000 people in like a number of days and like thousands of people read it online and it was a big deal. And I say that because I'm always trying to figure out like how do we create space for people to do incredible work? And I don't think that you need to be a member of an organization to make an impact. I don't think that you need to have a chapter or something to make an impact. That the internet has opened up a new type of organizing and I'm trying to figure that out. I understand that critiques and sort of the people who feel any type of way about me, whether kindly or unkindly, when I ran for mayor, people were probably meaner to me than anything I've ever done in my life. So I get that part of it. But when I think about like how I process it, like I know that I'm one of many people and I try to make sure that I use this platform for good. But I mean, so many people are like, no, I don't need this. You know, I don't need to deal with this. I'm trying to do good and I'm getting this negative reaction. How do you, you know, balance that so that you continue to use your voice in a positive way? Yeah, I know that this work will always be more important than it is popular. And if I had waited until like there was consensus to keep going on, like I would have stopped and so many people would have. So... I do get frustrated by the amount of stuff that I didn't do that I have to respond. Like, it's one thing for me to say something you just, like, disagree. Then it's like, okay, I get it. But I do get beat up around, like, Teach for America. And it's like, I don't, you know, I was a teacher. But people will be like, you know, Teach for America is destroying communities and da 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 Like, why did you? And you're like, I, you know, if you have gripes with Teach for America, you A, should fight with Teach for America about it. But B, like, it is weird to have to deal with those critiques that are based on things that, like, aren't actually scandalous or like I interviewed Katie Perry in the podcast Katie's a friend and there's like a two minute clip that came out of it on Twitter like before the interview came out because it was live streamed and one of her fans cut it you know my intention to like appreciate Japanese culture I did it wrong with a performance and I didn't know that I did it wrong until I heard people saying I did it wrong. And like, I spent two days with people being irate, like think pieces, all this stuff, like DeRay's coddling Katy Perry and da da da. And it's like, you didn't even listen to the interview. Like, I don't even, you know, like you literally saw a two minute clip and suddenly I'm like a sellout to the world. And that sort of stuff is frustrating. You mentioned your mayoral run and getting some blowback from that run. I mean, what sort of criticism were you receiving and why? Oh, blowback is a very kind way to talk about some, <laughs> some people's response. No, don't just be on a piece of paper from the news or be on the news or be on the internet. Like, they need to see your face. Like, it should be more interaction with the community. You know, it's funny now, and I, like, I'm, I did a fundraiser in New York City, and it literally was like a BuzzFeed story being like, DeRay caters to rich elite. And you're like, anybody who's running for office, have you ever worked on any campaign? They're raising money from whoever's giving it to them. I also got people really upset that I sort of came out of nowhere, right? 
And that's interesting because now people run for office and it's like a good thing that you aren't like sort of beholden by the establishment. But then it was like, I didn't do a tour of the city's leaders and like ask them for permission. And you're like, okay, that's sort of interesting. People were like convinced that like somebody called me and was like to run for mayor, which is not what happened at all. And that there must have been some like ulterior motive. Why did you run? Because I really do think that's a way to make a difference. That like, Did you expect to win? You know, I, I ran to win is that I, in hindsight, I would have announced way early. I announced literally in the middle of the night on the very last day. And it wasn't, you know, people also thought that there was like some PR stunt. And it was uh, so many people were running because the law had just changed. So many people were running for so much that I couldn't find an election lawyer who didn't have a conflict of interest. And I was like, I'm not running for mayor without a lawyer, right? Who like knows election law. Like there should be a lawyer. And it wasn't until like, the morning of the last day that we got this call back and this law firm was like, oh, we're actually not conflicted. What'd you learn that you think will shape, you know, either your future or the movement's future? People should run. I think that there's no substitute for knocking on doors, like no no substitute in any of the space. So like the debates, nothing, none of that compares to knocking on doors. The public isn't actually primed to like hear solutions. One of the most fascinating things about it I'd be on these panels and like somebody would be like, what are you going to do about education? Somebody else in the panel would be like, education is a problem. And then people start clapping. You're like, they didn't say anything. They literally just repeated the problem back. And you're like cheering. Like, what is happening? So that was sort of wild to see over and over. Just like how little we have let the public in on like anything that looks like a solution that people literally praise you repeating the problem back. Like that was sort of fascinating to watch over and over. And in Baltimore, we did like for the first time, we did like house parties and like people would like run out bars so we could come talk about the campaign and like that sort of stuff was really cool. And that changed the way that I thought about like civic engagement that like I hadn't as a kid growing up in the city, I'd never seen that, you know, I'd never seen like a mayoral candidate come to somebody's like living room with 50 of their neighbors. Like that wasn't a political space that I'd known before. What kind of work can be done in Washington? Because I mean, in a way, it's become a talking point on the far right among conservatives to use the movement to kind of rally their base. Is there something that can be done here in Washington to further what you're trying to accomplish and what the movement is trying to accomplish? I spend a lot of time on this idea of like simple truths. One is like the how do we sort of break it down to like the basic pieces and then push people to like imagine differently. Think about how many rooms you're in where like we really just talk about the problem over and over. We're like, this is really bad. And then we rarely talk about like what solutions could look like. And I, I think that's important. The second is is like forcing people to name their assumptions. Like the right has figured out like how to make the most complicated message simple, even if it's untrue. The left, I think, sort of over talks. So like what's a felon, right? If I ask you what's a felon, most people would think of like you've robbed three banks, blew up two buildings, and like murdered 50 people in cold blood. Like that's people's image of a felon. But in Virginia, if you steal something over $200, that's a felony. So you have people who stole like an iPhone who have permanently lost the right to vote in the state of Virginia. Like that's wild. Most people would be like, I didn't know a felony was stealing a bike. You know what I mean? Like some of that is like just the storytelling work. And like, I believe if we did that better, it would help us get the policy wins. Because if I told you that, the $200 was set in the 80s, it'd be easier for me to like get you to support making 
the amount for theft to be tied to inflation if you just like understood it better but like you don't really understand it which is why you're not able to help me fight you know what I mean and I think there's a way for us to like help invite people into these conversations in a way that makes sense whereas the right can just say like they're dangerous right and our response is a 50,000 word essay and you're like that is not helpful so like how do we tighten up the message and you would think about Trump is that With Make America Great Again, he's asking you to remember and recall. Like, remember a time when when white people ran everything and there was no sense of equity and justice, and let's recall that time and bring it back. So that doesn't actually take a lot of imagination because we've been there before. Then on the left, we're trying to imagine a world of equity and justice. I think about freedom as not only the absence of oppression, but the presence of justice and joy, and that we don't know what it looks like to have justice and joy. We've never seen that world before. So that takes, like, deep imagination from us, and I think that in the absence of people imagining and sort of painting that picture for people that the strategies and tactics will always be all over the place until we have an image that at least can be our focus point to fight for. You mentioned that the evolution of the movement seems so long ago when it really has been such a short period of time. Where do you think the movement is now and where do you think it needs to go? I mean, one thing I found interesting, you have this inside-outside experience. You've not been shy about approaching politicians and dealing with politicians. You know, the civil rights movement was a decade-long worth of activism, that it wasn't like one or two years or three years. It was a a long time. When I think about where we are now is that, like, we've changed the conversation about race and justice undeniably, that people are talking about it. It's that people understand the issues more now than ever. The work to be done is that there are more people who want to do good than there's an infrastructure to absorb their energy. And there are two big models of organizing that are happening right now. There's there's one model of organizing that says, support me, and then I'll fight for you. There's another way to organize that says, let us figure out how to build as many people's capacity as possible and like let us fight together. And I think that is the type of organizing that I'm more invested in. I think that both have a place in this ecosystem. But when I think about what comes next is like, how do we help people get concrete wins around around the country? And, w- and withstanding Trump is like obviously a part of it, but what would it look like to like decarcerate your state, like make your school system equitable and just? Like I think those things are possible in a way that they have not been possible before. And the question is like, can we put together a plan that can do it? Can we create space so everybody has a role to play? I think that is what comes next. How much does political involvement have to do with that? I'm sort of struck that Black Lives Matter, a lot of folks in the Black Lives Matter movement don't want that political linkage. I look back at Occupy Wall Street. You know, they were railing against a system and they also didn't want to align themselves closely to politicians. People can ask, well, what's Occupy Wall Street doing now? I mean, do you see any comparison to the two in terms of what they stood for and outcomes? I don't think it's necessarily about like aligning yourselves to politicians. I think a lot of people don't want to align themselves to politicians, whether they're in a movement space or not. The system is going to exist tomorrow. And while we work for some longer systemic changes, we need the system to be right for people today, that those don't have to be at odds. I do think what is real, and this was my last sort of back and forth with President Obama, the older establishment has not taken seriously, this is what I said to Hillary after our first meeting, has not taken seriously that some people just don't believe in the system anymore. They feel like, why should I participate when like it's never helped me, it's never benefited me? I, you know. And I said to Obama, the last time I saw him was like, I voted my entire life and like I still got tear gas, still got arrested, still got pepper spray. Like voting wasn't the thing that like suddenly made America like a less racist, just place for me personally. And I wish that people started to talk about voting as one of the key tools that we can use as opposed to like the tool that will change people's lives. I think that that turned off a lot of people who were like, I voted forever, right? Like I've always participated, but the only time I was hurt was when I stood in the middle of the street. And I think that that is like how so many people feel and to not respond to that, I think, is like shooting yourself in the foot. 
And I'll say with Hillary, like having met with her, she actually understood the policy stuff really well. And it was not too far off from what people wanted. The problem is that you didn't know that, right? Like you never heard her talk about it. And I think that that was a real fault of the campaign is that like I look back on some of those conversations we had with the campaign and with her and like would have loved for those to be things that like you saw that were like real interviews that you got to experience and not just meetings because like she got it more than you ever saw in public. And again, I think that that was like not taking seriously that young people were like, I'm just not going to vote at all. Right. That like I'm just going to opt out. And I think that they could have set her up differently to like participate in sort of the overall landscape. But do you think that was her or her campaign? I think that it was the campaign. I, you know, she's ostensibly leading the campaign. But I think that it was bigger than her in the sense that, like, there's, like, a generation that just didn't think that this was, like, a necessary thing. And I think about, you know, I've been reading a lot of the civil rights leader stuff, and you think about, like, Rustin and King and, and so many of them is that they couldn't imagine a world where people didn't vote, you know? Like, they worked so hard to get the right to vote that they, like, None of their writing talks about like what to do if people don't vote because like that was not a world they could imagine. But that's a world we live in where like voting actually didn't turn out to be the thing that like would make people feel like the world had changed as much. And I think people like didn't take that seriously. I think that they will moving forward. In your podcast, you've had Cory Booker on. You've had conversations with Bernie Sanders. What have you learned from them as politicians that would carry you forward to your next political endeavor? And while we're asking about that, when will you run for office again? Don't know when I run for office or if I will. Um, but from talking to people in the political space, most people want to do good, don't always know what that looks like. And I think that in this moment, people are trying to do what's right, whether they want to be like the hero of criminal justice or like they want to get reelected and getting close to them and helping them see and like making the case for what they should be doing with their power actually works more often than not. Like I- I've been surprised by that. And I think about the people that reach out either to be on the podcast or that I reach out to is that sometimes like the basic questions are like some of the hardest questions for them. I had a great conversation with Terry McAuliffe and this wasn't a basic question, but I asked him like, what would he, if he had another term as the governor of Virginia, like what would he do next? Right. And he paused for a little bit and then had like an excellent answer that like helped me think about like what the work ahead looked like in Virginia. Right. And there's so many other people like that who... I'm interested in like how they imagine what the future looks like. Or you think about Bernie, I remember when we were with Bernie, is that Bernie didn't have like a nuanced understanding of how formulas worked in like federal legislation, which was sort of a challenge for our conversation. And we met with his team after we like worked with his team to like try to figure out like, you know, you have this huge platform, like how do we help you like think about the power you have differently, you know, and Hillary worked with her team a lot on the policing stuff and like the criminal justice stuff. Hillary like got it. You know, the movement's gone through quite a bit of change since its inception. I mean, it's gone from a hashtag to people in the street to also a political talking point. I mean, you've got Republicans who are equating it to a hate group, equating it to white supremacists. Um, Fraternal Order of Police head in Philadelphia described uh, the local BLM chapter as a pack of wild animals. What do you make of those characterizations? You know, nobody took to the street because they thought that this was going to be the most popular work in the world. And we know that we exist in a legacy of struggle, that we didn't invent resistance uh, and we didn't discover injustice in August of 2014. So when I think about people being upset with any activists, like that just comes with the territory in so many ways that the people before us dealt with immense hate directed towards them. And the people want us to be silent as a part of this work, that that's like expressly what people want is our silence. 
Uh, and people just aren't willing to do that. So it's powerful to see people organize around the country in their homes and their schools and their churches or in their neighborhoods. And it's not surprising to me that people in power are pushing back because especially the police are some of the least reflective of the public institutions that we have right now. I mean, where do you see the movement in 10 years, 2024? Where do you see the movement? You know, one of the things is that for a generation of us, we don't know what it's like to fight and win. There are some successes at the local level in places like Chicago and in some cities in California and things like that. But gay marriage is probably the only thing that we grew up and saw people fight for and like you saw it happen. And maybe DACA, maybe healthcare a little bit, you saw it happen. But I think that if we can create a situation where like people come together and then they like fight for something and then it changes, I think that that starts a momentum where people like continue to do that more and more and more. And I think that that's huge. So in a decade, I'm hopeful that we'll look back and we'll be like, wow, I can't believe they locked up so many people 10 years ago. That's so wild. And like we have the lowest incarceration rate in the world. And like, this is incredible. And we'll like all be really proud of that, that we'll look back and be like, wow, that everybody has health care. And like, look at how we did it so quickly. Like, what will public education look like? Like, everybody can read on grade level. Things that like seem wild and crazy today, but like are totally possible. Well, listen, thank you very much for your time. Good luck with your podcast and come back and visit us again. Great to be here. Thanks again to DeRay McKesson for being here. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to Majority Minority on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and hear more stories at mcclatchydc.com slash mm. This show is produced and edited by Jordan Marie Smith and Davin Coburn, and thanks to executive producer Ayanna Morali. And we'll be back soon with more Majority Minority.